Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 71st episode of our podcast, I interviewed Steve Saraceno, founder and partner at Activant Capital. Steve has several years of experience as an investor in disruptive technology companies. He launched Activant Capital in 2012 to focus on growth stage businesses where they can actively partner with companies and help them scale. The firm makes a small number of investments per year so they can optimize their value. The strategy is working as the firm has seen exits from investments in Hybris, Recommind, and Upland. Their current portfolio includes companies like Newstore, Select, Indigo, Boxed, and more. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Steve's background, including the story of how he bought Disney stock when he was just 11 years old, all the details on active and capital and how they help companies with scaling, the three key factors that he looks for when he's investing in a company, how pricing has evolved for software companies and their thesis around value share pricing, his thoughts around the future of retail and commerce, how to build a highly effective board of directors, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Thank you for listening to the VentureFizz podcast. If you find this interview useful, then I have a quick favor to ask of you. Please forward this podcast to two of your colleagues. We want everyone in our industry to hear these great stories as they are all inspiring. Plus, there's lots of useful and practical advice for building startups. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Steve. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for having me. Um, I was listening to another podcast episode that you did and I was fascinated because you brought up something that when you were 11 years old, you purchased your first, uh, ownership of stock in, in Walt Disney. So, so how did that actually happen? How did you buy stock at such a young age? Sure. So that was my, uh, grandfather got me interested in the stock market and actually taught me how to read, um, the wall street journal. And if you recall, you couldn't get your stock tickers online or the prices you actually had to go to paper and they're produced every day. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and he, so my grandfather was a professor of history at Berkeley, left during World War II and fought in the theater in Europe and then in uh, Asia, came back. And uh, there were no, there aren't many uh, jobs for history professors at that point in time. So he became a stockbroker and he really drove my interest in the market. And then what drove my interest in tech was like a lot of my generation was gaming. And so those two things collided. But yes, the first stock I bought was Disney and the second was called uh, Spectrum Information Technology. It went from a dollar fifty to four or five dollars in the matter of six months, and I thought I was an investing genius. <laughs> I realized very quickly that wasn't the case. And public markets uh, for the inexperience is primarily luck. Where did you grow up, and what did what did your parents do for work? Sure. So I grew up in Irvine, California. My grandfather was in Northern California. Uh, my father started a publishing business that uh, did how-to books, and my mother was a teacher and then a homemaker. And um, pretty normal upbringing, middle class in Irvine uh, is a very boring place to grow up. So you had to develop things on the side to, to make your own fun. And you know, it was the advent of the microcomputer, the PC, and a lot of my friends got together and we would develop, not only develop our own games, but we, would, we were doing multiplayer gaming before that was really available, um, PC to PC with floppy disks. And um, What was your first computer? Oh gosh, I had a Commodore. Was my first computer, and then I had sixty-four. Yep, and then a Compaq and the gaming systems and television. If you remember that, yes, I do. I yeah, do. Atari. Uh, but it went through all the standard platforms. 
Yeah. Yeah. I never had a gaming console when I was that age. I, I always wanted the Atari, but um, my, uh, my parents got me a Texas Instruments computer instead, which that, that worked out well. Wow. That, that was a while ago. They haven't made computers in years. <laughs> I know. It was a TI-99 4A. Yeah. Oh yeah. But I wanted the, um, either Intellivision, Atari, or, Com- or a um, ColecoVision. Coleco, that's right. I, I used to love Coleco. that one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so what brought you to, to study uh, finance at SMU? Sure. So I uh, had dreams of being a politician and saving the world. And I was in school and I remember vividly walking down um, SMU's campus. It's very beautiful. There's a central corridor and it leads toward this big, magnificent building that um, looks like a replica of what's at UVA. And saw a squirrel running by and I, I just I decided that the best way to impact the world wasn't necessarily to become a lawyer and go down the political route but was to um, to conduct business and I thought I could drive more change through that and actually the best way to do it is investing right allocating capital and so I literally made a wholesale decision a sophomore year to switch from being pre-law to business and went to the business school and um, did very well there and then ended up uh, going to investment banking at Roberts and Stevens, which was a natural place to mix technology and finance. Uh, and Roberts and Stevens was at the center of the dot-com boom and bust. If you recall, those are the four horsemen. Robbie was by far the biggest and the best, but there was Montgomery Securities, H&Q and Alex Brown. And we financed most of the dot-com startups. We conducted most of the big mergers. So if you remember Excite at Home is something that we worked on. Um, and, uh, and then, and took it to the top and around the peak in March. So I remember March 20th, um, was really the peak was early March, but on March 20th, the market, um, was down a couple points and on, sorry. And the fed actually raised rates very similar to what happened today on the 21st it was down 68% and the rest is history. And around that same time, Robbie Stevens came out with a full page ad in the wall street journal it said, thanks, old economy, we'll take it from here. <laughs> and uh, I remember when they released that, and we all cheered and screamed and were happy. And unbeknownst, uh, unbeknownst to us, that was the top of the market. Yep. So now I'm careful about what I prognosticate or say about my own firm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah you don't want to be the one to uh, create the next slide deck, you know, rest in peace, good times. Exactly. Exactly right. So from there, you went on to other opportunities in the investment banking industry, right? Yeah. So Robbie, uh, again, um, it was just a very special place. It, it lasted until very early O2. So I was there till the end and then it was shut down. That's a whole nother story. But the nice thing is the people there were just brilliant. And so they it blew up like a neutron bomb. So our friends landed everywhere all over the world. It's still one of my strongest networks and um, helped some people start a very small investment bank that we reversed into a public shell and I made enough money doing that to pay for business school. I uh, went to Wharton, uh, spent some time at McKinsey in Hong Kong. Uh, this was back in 2005. I was the only non-Chinese speaker they hired that year and that was fascinating and gave me a good taste for what was going on in Asia at the time um, and then came back into investing in 2006 with American Capital. Let's talk about your, your B-School experience. Do you think that's something that, um, like, when should people think about, you know, attending B-School? Sure. So, you know, I think earlier it is generally better. Um, it depends on your maturity, but for, if you're a more mature 20 year old, uh, I would start preparing to go when you're 24, 25. If you want to make a, cran- a tr- cran- sorry, a career transition later um, in your twenties, it's a really good time to go. I think things have changed. Um, 
you know, the um, millennial and Gen Z tend not to want to go to business school as much as, as we did. And it's not as necessary, I think, but for some people it can be a very valuable experience. And I think the top schools will always be a great place to go. It's a very personal decision, but if you want to make a career transition, it's an absolute no brainer. Uh, it's fantastic for your network. Um, I still have a very, very broad network from my class at Wharton. We still get together a couple times a year and there'll be 20, 30, 40 of us at these get together. So it's a, it is a powerful network and, not to be dismissed, but not as necessary as I think it used to be um, 10, 20 years ago. And then after business school, you went on and continued in the investment banking industry. Uh, but uh, then, after, yeah, no, after business school, uh, McKinsey. Or, oh, sorry, and, McKinsey. And then then. came back to investing, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And then during that period, what, what did you work on before starting your own firm? So I worked at two different firms, and I knew that um, – you know, my interest laid in, um, was in investing, but also uh, investing in tech. And the neat thing about American Capital, I had the opportunity to help build the Palo Alto office. I managed over $20 billion at the time. It was one of the largest, it was bigger than Blackstone even in terms of the ability to play capital. And we could do everything from a $5 million in venture investment to a $700 million buyout, which we did of Extreme Software and sold to HP and everything in between. And what I realized there is that the difference between venture growth and buyout is really you're picking a cap table or investing along the business cycle. And what really excited me was the growth stage. So taking the entrepreneurial business and helping it become an at-scale enterprise. And not only was that what I found the most fun, but also, um, you know, just if you look at the numbers purely, growth equities outperformed every asset class, um, even public markets over a 10 and 20 year period. Uh, it's undeniably the best place to, to, to invest. And that's where you're seeing more and more investors gravitate towards growth and growth equity. Um, I got a chance to exercise that uh, hypothesis at Serent. And what I realized quickly was that I am also a business builder and entrepreneur. I had extremely strong views on not only how to invest, but how to team build and decided that I had to go build my own firm. And I left Serent and started Activent right after the market crash in 09. So in January of 010 and started investing on my own. So which, difficult times to start a, a firm, yet you know, now as time has progressed, it probably was a good time. I, I mean, not easy at the time, but looking back, maybe a good time. So it was a fantastic time to invest. It was a, a treacherous time to start a firm. So right. my mentors at the time you know, said, look, you're in your early 30s. It's, it's January 2010. You're not going to raise a fund. So what you should do is just go invest deal by deal. So find a great asset and then raise the capital for it rather than raising the capital up front and then investing out of a fund. And so that's how we started. And um, it's the most difficult thing you can do in private equity or an investing period is deal by deal because you've got to find a great asset, wrap that up, hold it to the ground long enough to then go get the investors. And you're basically just herding cats. And uh, what a great training ground. I put eight investments together over a four-year period, which almost killed me. Um, and uh, one was Hybris, of course, which was uh, bought for $1.5 billion by SAP, invested in iCongo, invested in MetroTech, which um, TA and then HG subsequently purchased, took Upland Public, um, which was doing fantastic. Uh, Jack McDonald's the CEO over there. And you know, through this process, I got to see how not only you know, develop our own um, process, but I had an opportunity to see how other investors worked as well and what worked for them and what didn't. And as we moved towards a fund um, at Activent, 
you know, took a lot of the best practices that I saw. And then again, overlaid my own hypothesis on, you know, how to build the right team and infrastructure. Because really at the end of the day, an investment firm is a collection of people with ideas and you make decisions and your, dis- your decisions are somewhat discreet because we're not doing public markets where we can, you know, trade in and out of an asset. These are very long-term bets. And so you need, you know, a moment of clarity. You need a couple hours of clarity to make that decision. And then once you make the decision, you're in. And you can't look back and, um, and question that. You just got to move forward. Now, your firm, Activent Capital, does operate in a unique category, right? Because it's a, a longer-term uh, outlook on companies. Like there's a 15-year lockup from your LPs, right? That's correct. So our view... Most investments uh, last longer than the average marriage in the U.S. So th- I mean, these are very long-term bets. And what we found is that many firms, when they make an investment, they're, very, they're driven a lot by their fundraising cycle. So what you'll see is the, the good investments, they'll sell early to put points on the board and then raise a new fund and they hold on to their bad investments for a long period of time until they write them off. So structurally, we were set up because we had exits we had success. The team had had carry checks. So we weren't in a rush to get generate carry. What we wanted to do is build a structure where we could hold these assets for a longer period of time. And um, look, this is what Warren Buffett does. Einstein said the eighth wonder of the world is compounding interest. And if you look at probably the best money manager in the world is Jeff Bezos, right? He just held on to Amazon through the ups and downs. And if you're willing to write out a great asset um, through the cycles of the market, there's no better way to drive long-term IRR. And so we originally started with this 15-year lockup, but you can imagine how that went over with the LP community in our first fund. It was an absolute battle to get the $75 million in our first fund. It was a battle. And if you look at our strategy, we're writing on median $25, $30 million checks. So basically we're getting three, maybe four assets in this fund. So it's going to be a highly concentrated fund and, um, you know, our investment pace is a little slower because we're doing larger, larger investments, but we went through that fund pretty quickly in about 18 months or less. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the fundraising process, um, it might be the right process. It might be the wrong process. It does make you respect the capital. It is so difficult, uh, particularly as a first time fund manager to get that capital raised that, um, it is a healthy process. It makes you introspective. You really have to think about, okay, how are we differentiated? Um, how can I explain our process to somebody else, you know, clearly? Uh, and, um, and then once you, you know, you get it raised, you turn and then you're doing the same thing, right, as we deploy capital. And you're taking that um, same measured approach to assessing companies and making sure you follow your process and that it's repeatable. And what's the feedback from entrepreneurs that you're investing in as far as, you know, how your, your firm is structured? Yeah, so I think um, they like the fact that uh, we can move quickly. We are very long-term oriented and and sector focused. Uh, I think most of the feedback you'll get is actually what we do um, right around the time we close and post-close, which is we we are relatively involved in these businesses. So we're we're a little later stage in venture, so we're actually investing in these businesses when they're doing a lot of the hard process work. So taking and implementing process around go-to-market money process around customer success and um, you know what we found in tech is that most software can be replicated with enough time and enough money what is really differentiated is just execution and so we really focus on execution and working with our companies to execute better and then give them the space to you know people always make mistakes and and learn along the way I think the other thing that we do and this is 
the advantage of being sector focused is as we run through a thesis for a couple of years and look at a sector, we develop what we call an ecosystem, which is senior decision makers that buy software. And so our two primary areas are commerce infrastructure and IoT or data supply chain. So taking analog data and making it digital. We actually make introductions before we even sometimes issue a term sheet to these senior decision makers to get their assessment of the product. That helps inform our diligence. It also um, helps inform how we underwrite, you know, what their growth curve could look like. So how many new customers can we line up for them as they approach the, the close? And then post-close, of course, we make more introductions. And so that's the one thing you'll hear from our CEOs is, is we should be their top salesperson across the entire firm. Uh, and that, that's good for us, it's good for them, and it's good for our ecosystem because they wanna be exposed to new technologies. CPG companies, retailers, wholesale manufacturer, distribution logistics businesses, all realizing they are actually just technology businesses now. Like every business is a technology business and how do you separate the two? I don't think you can. It's just varying levels across industry of who's adopted and who hasn't. For instance, agriculture, one of the last industries to really adopt technology and there are reasons, structural reasons for that that you know have been around for hundreds of years because the output guys like Bungie and Cargill have just owned that supply chain since, for sure, since the, the early 1900s. So uh, in commerce, obviously, there's a lot more dislocation. It's very exciting. And then in IoT, you know, the same reason Masayoshi Son invested in ARM because, you know, you got two microprocessors in this thing and there's about one and a half microprocessors per person in the world right now. In the next 10 or 20 years, it could be 100 or 1,000. And imagine all the data that's going to have to be managed through that. So super excited about both our sectors. But I think the key differentiator at the growth stage is investing in a team that is capable of working with your CEOs and working with those businesses to help them scale. And how do you scale? Like, how do you advise companies on scaling, especially when it comes to that sales piece? Like, you know, you're helpful in making connections, but once you start to really scale and grow, grow a, a, hopefully a very large business, um, how do you advise on that, you know, sales process, sales team building? Yeah, so um, we start with instrumentation. So you want to instrument a business. And um, as I can't remember who the famous CEO said, but you get more of what you measure. So let's figure out what we want to measure and how we want to measure it and we do it together. And then um, if we want to drive those key KPIs or OKRs, you know, what are the thing? what are the, the where's the low hanging fruit in the business? Is it around actually go to market? Is it, is it enterprise sales? Is it mid-market sales? Is it marketing or providing air cover? Lots of times it's just product marketing. And product marketing, right, is simply exp explaining your product and arming your sales team with the right materials to go sell that product. Um, just given, you know, there's the sales, the whole market's very competitive because there's a lot of well-funded companies with enterprise salespeople. And so what we'll do with the CIO is identify a couple areas and then work with them on it. And sometimes it's just being inside the company and attending meetings and not saying anything and then going back and, um, and we've done this so many times now that we can identify easy changes or quick fixes with the CEO. You know, you do get a benefit when you look at like functional areas of a company. So sales, marketing, IT, finance, right? We know exactly how to set up a finance department. We know exactly how many heads you need, how to do it, and then how to manage it and what systems to put in place. And so a lot of these things can be somewhat repeatable. Um, you know, probably 60 to 70% of it. And then the other 30 to 40% is unique to that business. And that's where all the challenge comes in. And just, you know, being a thought partner with the founder, it's, it's, it's a delicate balance because 
they need to be able to run the business and they need to be able to run the business like they own it and like they're going to own it for a hundred years. So it's, it's more of a support function. And, um, you know, you need to be there when they need you and you need to get out of the way when, when, uh, they need time with their team on their own. And so, um, the easy things though for us have always been just, you know, here's how you instrument a customer success team. Here's what we've seen as work. And then they can take the bits and pieces that we've seen work and implement that for themselves. If that, if that function isn't humming like a, like a machine. So you closed your uh, second fund about 130 million last year in February of last year. Um, so what do you generally look for? You've touched upon this a little bit, but just kind of the, the core elements you look for when you're finally at the point of making an investment. Sure. So um, it's, there are three primary things. So team, which is the obvious one product. We have a very heavy product lens and then, and then business model. And um, I'll touch on each of these, but um, team's obvious. Um, you know, we need a great CEO, um, great team around them. We want them to be a leader and have an ability. I mean, a CEO at the end of the day really sets goals and recruits. And so someone that's very good at those two things and then obviously sets vision. Product and business model. So we're enterprise, generally enterprise investors. What's happened in the enterprise market is your propensity to buy 10, even five years ago, but 10, 15 years ago for sure, was higher if you like the salesperson or if you live close to the headquarters of the business. Mm -hmm. What's happened today is there's no more friction in the market. So Keith, you probably have some like editing software or whatever for this podcast. You want to upgrade your entire systems around your podcast. You'll Google around, you'll find 10 or 20 amazing solutions. You'll buy one. Um, and that could be located in LA, Boston or Helsinki. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you can actually Google a demo and talk to customers means that those best products rise to the top very fast. And then people talk about like this winner take most market. The reason that they become winner take most markets is because if you look at the business model, the business models we want to see are companies with heavy data modes that provide network effects for their customers. Meaning with each new customer they add, they're collecting more data that helps them decision better for their existing customer base. Right. So that, that net, there's that network effect where they just get more powerful and smarter and smarter. And so as they get more data, you can apply machine learning and artificial intelligence to actually drive better decisioning at the customer. And so that product lens is super important. What we found is as we move through a thesis or a theme, and we spend a couple of years and we talk to the senior decision makers, you look, what are the pain points? What are the pain points on logistics on the retail side or for CPG? What, you know, what are the major pain points? And then what we do is we look and search for a company that solves that pain point. So we kind of know what the promised land is. When you find the right product with a great team, then the next question is business model. Are they just charging pure SaaS, right? So um, software as a service, how are they charging? And um, we're actually, you know, SaaS, um, we, we have a number of SaaS businesses. We're still looking at SaaS. Generally though, we're slightly more bearish on SaaS these days and we want to see what we call a value share model, meaning they're charging more percent of revenue, percent ROI or some sort of transactional basis. So they're more aligned with the customer. So for instance, that would be the equivalent of your podcast software, you paying them, you know, a penny or whatever for every listener versus I got to pay you 50 grand a year. And businesses that can charge in that model, that value share model, are much more powerful businesses than those that can't. And so we still look at SaaS, we still will do SaaS, but we are really focusing in on that business model now. And so companies with those three components, then it becomes about pricing. And can we match up price that works for us because we have to provide return to our investors and a price that works for them because they're very dilution sensitive and 
I've done this a long time. You generally know what a fair price is. It should hurt for both parties a little bit. And if it does, then you know you kind of found the right spot. And, um, you know, that that's a conversation actually best had over, over dinner and a, and, a, and a bottle of wine. And um, that, that's generally how we have those price discussions because a lot is informed by price and it's very personal for these entrepreneurs, but it also kind of isn't. It, it's, you know, in, in the growth stage and venture stage, it's about the partner too and finding the right partner. And so it's not like buyout where all you care about is price maximization. It is interesting how, uh, you know, software and the licensing model has evolved and, you know, it was enterprise and, you know, then SaaS and, you know, you didn't need salespeople. You could just buy directly online for software. And now, like you, you're talking about just how, um, you know, being totally aligned with the customer success based on what your revenue share ends up yep. being is uh, such just a continuous evolution. Yeah. So I, we made up value share. We should like trademark it. Someone, oh, that was your term that you made up. Yeah. I don't know if Gartner or Forrester is going to come up with a better term, but there is that net. I totally agree with you. There is that next evolution. And yeah, the, you know, the difference between license maintenance and SAS, you know, it's really from a technological standpoint, yes, there's multi-tenant SAS, but it's really not that different. You're still, it's still, there's still servers involved. It's really just an expression and a pricing difference. And so the, you know, before there was SaaS, it was called ASP. If yeah. you remember, application yeah. service providers in yeah. like 99 to 2003, most of them died because they are capital heavy businesses. Mm -hmm. And so as the venture community really restarted in 04, they had enough capital to actually build the SaaS model and, and support those businesses as they burned and, and then got to break even or profitability. And yes, it is a better business model than licensed maintenance. Um, longer term and that revenue is more valuable, but it takes a lot of cash to get there. Mm -hmm. The next iteration now clearly is in our minds are going to, is going to be value share and that value share pricing model. And you're going to see, we think companies, so the average fortune 1000 company has 150 SaaS relationships. The market is rolling over right now as we speak. If things get really tight, they're going to start rationalizing that. And again, this is why having the best products really important what is that mission critical product that's actually making them, helping them decision better, not just managing workflow? And, and how is that, is that product being priced? And so we're very focused on, on uh, that business model component right now, I'm working with our companies to implement the right business model. Well, an area that, you know, you talked about of, of focus is uh, retail and commerce. So you've made, you know, many investments in that category already, uh, you know, boxed, select mm -hmm. new store so so what are your thoughts on the future of retail because it is such an amazing and fascinating area that is constantly evolving yes yes um it is and uh we've got a nice little collection of companies um in boston doing that so you mentioned new store um select um retail next back in san jose um a few others so retail and commerce will exist um the, the method in which we buy and interact is going to change. And so um, what we're seeing, you know, the thing with retail is that um, retail itself, you, it's a fixed cost. So you, you have a lease, you own a you know, retail space. And when you see these companies, you know, going through bankruptcy like Sears and others, it's going to free up space, which in that space becomes much cheaper. And so in, it's like a forest fire, right? So you have the old trees, Eventually they burn and forest fires are a very natural part of the ecosystem and evolution in a forest. And then under it, new trees blossom and grow. And so 
we're going to see this massive, you know, we're in the beginning parts of the fire right now. So that fire is just started and it's going to spread, but in its place, we're going to see new models. And we've seen that already with a lot of the, what we call digitally native. So, you know, all birds on Tucket are two great examples that um, will start out online and then move into retail. And what we found is that the, the best digitally native companies do need to have a retail component because it's not just a way to reach a customer, but it's also marketing. And so, you know, it's, it's not going to look like it did a hundred years ago, but there will still be physical places and there'll still be online places for us to go. Now, the really interesting part is that this brings complexity into their business model. So how do they allocate inventory? How do they get inventory to the right place? How do they manage their supply chain now? And how do they compress the period down from where they want to design a bag or a shirt but they can get it in the customer's hands or in their, in their store on their website faster. Mm-hmm. And so all of that complexity is just technology. That's all it is. And this is, you know, we're in the early days of like a 40 year change in the market. Um, Amazon has absolutely massively disrupted, particularly the non-branded things. So you're looking for a toothbrush or soap or what have you, you know, that's where Amazon really shines. Um, these brands now to compete are going to have to defend their own territory with online territory, right? Not on Amazon, but their own site that people go to and their own physical space. And then they're going to have to instrument that to know where their inventory is between the two and know where um, people are between the two. So where are your customers between those two? The connection to IOT for us or what we call, you know, data supply chain is that really both commerce infrastructure and the, the data businesses we're in are just taking data in the analog world, making it digital and then helping you decision better. So all of these are just simply like, how do we decide, you know, what inventory to show Keith in the store online and then how to market to you appropriately and what your, your tastes are going to be relative to, you know, my taste, for instance. And so, I mean, this is, we're in the very early stages here, here, which gets us very excited. And it seems like it's also finally happening. You know, you've heard about it, but it's finally happening in the home too with, you know, Alexa and, you know, refrigerators that have your shopping list. Like my wife and I are actually looking at refrigerators. So I was looking at the Samsung with yep. the, whatever their voice enabled name is. It's not Alexa. It's, it's uh, their own brand. Uh, so it just seems like the connected home is definitely, uh, you know, happening. And I think I saw reports from the holiday shopping of, how many you know, smart devices were purchased for the homes was just extraordinary. Yes. Uh, and so imagine all the data now that we have access to and the, and the, the different ways in which we can use um, the data that we're collecting off the devices in the home. So really an enterprise software technology, it, it, ultimately it's a business to business to consumer product, meaning um, we're enabling businesses to do something better for their consumers. And so the best businesses are extending that product to, for instance, the CPG or the logistics provider, but then down to their customer as well. And then, and then um, integrating that entire data stream to help everyone decision better. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interesting thing with in-home is that we thought voice was going to be a, um, a big driver of online ordering and growth. And what we realized is that people are actually quite lazy and aren't even ordering through voice. Uh, they'd rather go on their phone and just tap, uh, you know, the Amazon and, and press a button. Um, we have not seen the, vo- the growth in voice that we had expected. Interesting. Uh, and so we're not placing bets in home yet. Um, but eventually what we want to see is companies that can integrate that entire data stream. 
Well, let's let's talk more about kind of you know entrepreneurs and you know some of the you know things that they should be thinking about. One of which is you know building a board of directors, and uh, like I don't know if there's enough information out there. Like like how do you actually how should an entrepreneur think about building a board that is hopefully going to help guide them and you know mentor the business to the point of hopefully a successful type of exit. Yeah. So um, boards are. There's something that you have to live with forever as an entrepreneur. It's very hard to change out your board. So in the early days, um, when you're getting going, we see entrepreneurs can and sometimes do under-optimize their board to either raise capital from somebody or to get to the next level. And um, it's very hard to undo those decisions. And so at the earliest point we start thinking about your board, it's very important to think about who you want on your board and how you want to interact with them. The best boards... so. Philosophically, a board and a board member will never know as much about the company as you will, as the entrepreneur will. But they are, you know, they can be helpful in terms of setting strategy or just being a sounding board. And so the way that we like to interact from a board perspective is actually attend management meetings, attend sales meetings, go on a sales meetings, don't talk, you, you listen as a board member, but that helps inform you and you can be a much better sounding board advisor during the actual board meeting if you understand what's going on in the business you're not going to understand as well but you're going to know what you know the hot buttons are um, where some of the issues are how the team's working together and you can just be a much better advisor for the ceo and so you need the right person but you've got to set the right strategy and you got to work with your board in the right way and that is up to the entrepreneur and ceo so is this board member willing to go on a sales meeting with you are they willing to sit through a management meeting around how to, you know, better service customers, for instance? And so, you know, those are all in early indicators of is this someone that's going to care and going to work with us over the long term, or is it someone that's going to show up four times a year, not read the board deck, you know, opine on a few things that may or may not matter, and then walk out and you don't talk to them again for another quarter? And so, you know, I could count most. I sit on boards with some great board members and some that probably don't read the board deck uh, before they show up. And uh, I've even seen it written into a charter that the board member had to read the board deck before showing up. And so don't underestimate if you're an entrepreneur or CEO, how important those first couple of board members are, because that will really shape the board um, for the entirety of your business. Uh, be very careful about giving out board seats. It is not something that you should, um, you know, trade for capital even. Um, now, most venture firms do want board seats, but put, you know, define it. Say, okay, if you're coming on for the A by the C, we're going to reevaluate that seat and decide if you should come off or stay. Or, you know, this is a four or five year position, um, depending on, you know, how much additional capital we raise or what are new investors or what new board members we can get. Uh, I think the, the final point I make here is do go out and find strong independent board members, not investors mm -hmm. they, um, that either understand your industry or have been in your shoes before as a CEO. So and you may get one to get one of each. Absolutely critical. They do think about things differently because they may invest a little bit personally, which is good, but they're very different than an institution like, like Activent, for instance, or, you know, a, a famous venture institution. And, uh, they'll help counterbalance the investors. And so, you know, it could take a year to find the right independent, but, but um, set your bar very high for who you want. 
And I guess a perfect example of that was one of the companies that you invested in, a new store that you sit on the board. If you look at the other board members, it's, um, you know, it's, it's the present CEO of Victoria's Secrets and CEO of TJX companies. So you know, again, strong, independent, you know, uh, board members. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great example. So Stefan Schombach, a uh, very famous entrepreneur up in Boston. Um, he founded Intershop, took it public, got it to a billion dollars. Founded Demandware, took it public, sold it to Salesforce for 2.9 billion, and then founded New Store. And so he went through, uh, Intershop was licensed maintenance, Demandware was more SaaS, and then he shifted to value share and New Store's value share model. Um, it took him a long time to find the right board, but Carol Mirowitz and Sharon Turney, um, Carol was at TJ and, and Sharon was at Victoria's Secrets, have been incredible partners to Stefan and to the company. Uh, and you see, you know, he's an experienced CEO. He put an experience board together. Uh, and it's not just his experience that drew those board members in, but his passion for the business, what the business was doing, but he waited. So um, that business has been around for five years now. And we just added Carol and Sharon, I believe, um, about nine months ago. And so it is okay to wait to find the right independents, but when you find them, uh, don't hesitate, get them on your board alongside the investors. So based on the different companies that you've, uh, you know, been associated with, are there common mistakes that you see entrepreneurs make, like things that they should be avoiding at all costs? Oh gosh. Um, so we see lots of mistakes there. I don't know how many are universal. So, the mistakes that you know we want to try to set up guardrails for are um, the, the number one is just spending too much money too quickly, um, and particularly as we head into the market environment that it looks like we may be heading into, it's something that um, we should be watching every penny. Um, not managing the cap table or the equity appropriately because just like a board member, once you once you issue options or equity, that that equity is gone, uh, and it's gone for generally forever. Um, and so those are two things that we, we want to work with the entrepreneur on. I think, um, you know, a third then is just being transparent with not trying to manage your board or your investors. Cause like we all understand that things um, are hard. Not everything's up and to the right. Uh, one of our, one of our best investments was I think technically bankrupt for a period of time before we sold it and we had to put more money in and things happen. And if you're not transparent, um, or you don't have that right relationship with your board, it's very hard to go through the hard times. You know, it's easy in the good times, but it's hard for the hard times. So I think that's important. Otherwise, you know, I think some of the best CEOs, they are very process oriented. They understand how to prioritize and set goals for their team. And they're very good at hiring. And they can hire, not quickly, but um, in a manner that's efficient and, and hire at scale uh, in an efficient way. And I, you know, I think, I think those are, are real commonalities. Um, mistakes right now, I mean, look, I went through the, I lived through the 2000, 2003 period. There were something like 10,000 venture funds in 2000, and by 2004, there were something like 800. Uh, it was a desert of capital for um, technology companies. And, you know, look, this could be um, like the market rolled over in August 2011. Our current environment could be similar to that, but it could also be very similar to 0102, 03. And I think right now it's, if you need to raise money, raise it if you're a company. And if you've got money, protect it, protect that balance sheet and plan for, you know, two to three year period where it may be more difficult to raise capital. I don't think it's going to be as bad as 2000 to 2003, just because there is more capital that's locked up now, but you, should, you always want to prepare for that. 
you know, one of the things that, you know, I think is important is, you know, continuously, you know, learning from others. Um, you, know, you talked about having a strong board, but, um, you know, finding a good mentor, you talked about your own business of, you know, having good mentors. Like, yep. you know, one of the challenges that I've seen other entrepreneurs experience is, you know, there's lots of people that are willing to give you advice, but they are not necessarily the right person to give you that advice. Um, so what's, how do you go about finding like a good board member that can really help somebody? Yeah, I think, um, so I'll just, my mentors are people that had gotten to know personally, um, either through business or through friends. And then over the course of a couple of years of getting to know them and, you know, look, I mean, these are busy people and um, I had to make the effort to get in front of them. You know, I basically asked if I could just ping them with questions and most, most of the time, particularly people that are seasoned and, you know, in any industry are happy to do that if, if they like you and believe in you. And so I think it starts with finding people that actually care about you first. I'd much rather have someone that cares versus that's not as famous versus the most famous person in the industry. Because if they actually care about you and your success and your family and what's going on around you, um, I think you'll get better advice from, from those types of mentors. And so that takes time. You can't do that overnight and you've got to be willing to invest a year or two um, with these people because you may only get to meet them like once a quarter or once every six months because they're very busy. And if, over a couple of years in four or five meetings and maybe you can get to the point where they'll be more open to just answering quick questions on email or taking quick calls. And so it's, you know, like any, anything that is incredible, you got to invest in it and you got to be thoughtful and plan it out. So I want to talk about my own mentors personally, but I don't, I don't know if I want to share their name. Their yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, I cultivated my mentor. I have, I have two that ran some of the largest, most famous private equity firms on the planet. Mm -hmm. They were, they, they ran them. Um, actually three, uh, well, two for private equity and one for venture. And, um, I didn't go out and seek them. I just, I met them and it, it happened organically, but it was, they're incredible people. And um, it started with a, a personal relationship before it started. And then the mentor, um, the mentor piece came in later. Got it. Okay. Now, are there any companies that you find particularly interesting these days outside of your portfolio, of course? Oh gosh. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we're still spending a lot of time in um, supply chain and logistics. Uh, we invest in Turbo, of course. Um, and uh, we're, um, we're doubling down our efforts there because there's a massive amount of dislocation. Payments is another area that is very interesting for us. And where we, you know, where payments, payments is, it's a, it's a misunderstood industry because you, know, you have Adyen and PayPal and Stripe and then the traditional guys that just do the payments themselves. But most companies, particularly retails that sell online and offline retail companies, have to piece together all these components of fraud and checkout and shopping cart and the payment itself. And so we're looking for companies that have integrated that entire solution. Um, and there are a couple that have, there's actually one in San Francisco that we're looking at right now. That's just run by this incredible, incredible young man who um, has hired a, a great team around him. I think um, the other area that we're looking at in commerce infrastructure is experiential commerce. So rather than paying for a good, you know, you're paying for a service. Um, so it could be equated to like media, so paying for a movie, but you know, it might be um, 
you know, it might be someone to curate something for you or quick snippets of video or what have you, but just more of the experiential economy. Cause we're seeing that, you know, the, the millennials and, and Gen Z value experience as much as, as physical goods, which wasn't as true, I think, um, in our generation and they're spending money on it. And it makes sense because, um, you know, in, in when you're 80, 90, hundred, hopefully we're going to live to be 120. You look back, you remember the experience, not, not the shoes that you wore, what have you. So um, that's an area that we're very focused on as well. So what do you like to do outside of work when you have free time? Um, yeah, not much free time these days because uh, uh, we've been pretty busy, but um, golf and tennis and my, my two favorite hobbies. And then tra- just my uh, wife and I love to travel and uh, don't get to do it often. Um, and we take the kids and, you know, my wife calls those business trips when we take the kids along because they're not as much, they're a little more difficult than when we go by ourselves. But <laughs> yeah, we like to get out a lot. That's fun. Well, Steve, so, thanks so much for taking the time to share, you know, your background and obviously all the great things you're up to with your current firm and obviously all the great pieces of advice for entrepreneurs. Thanks, Keith. Enjoyed it. Great to meet you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.